Wellington Links rely on partnerships and the amazing work of so many organizations and leaders to achieve our collective community goals. I hold dear the bonds of friendship. We are friends transforming communities through service. implement transformative programs that address the most critical needs of underserved communities. Welcome to LinkedIn Impact with the Arlington Links, a podcast which transforms our community by highlighting the issues, resources, and leaders that you need to know. know that some days we may just feel better than others. We can start out the day with the best of intentions. We may do our workout, eat a good breakfast, start work on time, but our moods may get disrupted by a disappointing phone call, bad news in the world, or even getting frustrated by being stuck in traffic. Mental health includes our emotional, psychological, and social well-being. It affects how we think, feel, and act. It also helps determine how we handle stress, relate to others, and make healthy choices. For me, I know I go through bouts of depression, being overwhelmed, or feeling inadequate. Women are at least twice as likely to experience an episode of major depression as men. And compared to our Caucasian counterparts, African-American women are only half as likely to seek help. I truly enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Lisa Lowry Lomas, Eastern Area Director of the Lynx Incorporated. Lisa has worked in the field of psychology for 30 years and is an expert in human relations and development with a specialty in mood disorders, trauma, grief, DEI, life adjustment disorders, and couples. Frankly, as we talked about Black women's mental health, I felt like I was talking to a girlfriend. We cover a lot of ground, and I hope the conversation is beneficial to each and every one of you. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today for this podcast, Black Women's Mental Health. I'd love to start off just by asking you, as we were talking earlier, I put out a call for questions among a few Black women's groups, and there was so much interest in this topic. So I'm really excited that we're able to talk about this today. But a topic that continued to come up was dispelling the idea that as Black women, we always have to be, quote unquote, on. Can you talk about that and the impact that can have on our mental health? Absolutely. First, let me say thank you, Krista, for inviting me to have this conversation with you today. It is, of course, my favorite topic and one that I don't think we talk enough about, particularly in um, Black communities. And so kudos to you for selecting this topic and thank you for having me. You know, this idea of having to always be on and being the problem solver and having the S on our chest, so to speak, this strong woman is a fallacy that has been passed down um, from generation to generation. Mm-hmm. And and not just within our families, but outside of our families, where the expectation is that if you show emotions or feelings, or if you are less than perfect, perfectly quaffed in whatever you know mm-hmm. way that means or perfectly articulate that 
that you're lesser than. You know, I, I believe we could take this back to slavery days and racism when Black people have had to be, you know, twice as good to be considered half as good and that we have owned that to some degree. And really, again, generationally, it's been passed down. It's really kind of sunk into our head. And it's seven generations of these kinds of messaging, negative and traumatic times experiences really are intricately involved within a family. But then there's also this cultural pressure of Black women carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders. I mean, whenever they talk about voting, for example, they talk about how it's the Black women that get people to the the polls. So even selecting the president is something that ends up being our obligation and responsibility. I have a huge focus on Black family health. And who is it? It's the Black women in the family that get children and the men to go to the doctors. And so this ownership and obligation and responsibility of not only ourselves, but everyone around us contributes to this superwoman syndrome and this ideology that we must always rise occasion to be perfect. And I believe it's this kind of thinking that absolutely contributes to Black women suffering from depression, anxiety, eating disorders at a higher rate than every other culture, dying at a higher rate of diseases, cancer, high blood pressure, strokes, heart attacks. I mean, we are killing ourselves trying to live up to image that others have created that quite frankly, no human being, and let me say that again, no human can live up to because the expectation really means that we're less than human. Mm -hmm. You know, I really want to build, it may sound at first like I'm going off track, but I want to build something that you said because A few years ago, I started doing focus groups with Black and white women. And the idea was that there has been so much going on between, and I don't want to generalize about all, but many, because of our relationship with white women, starting back in slavery, just the dynamics of that, a lot of that, in my opinion, has been passed down. And what I wanted to do with these focus groups was to bring Black and white women together to talk about things like, what was your first interaction with another a woman of the opposite race? And how have you um, worked together in the professional setting? And how, because the goal was that I wanted to figure out in terms of advocacy, how Black and white mm-hmm. women today can work together because we're mm-hmm. often doing things separate. So we mm-hmm. started back, you know, talking about starting back from slavery. I bring this up because one, because you thank you so much for mentioning that a lot of these things began in slavery and they still exist within our families and outside of our families. But also because when I did these groups, there was a healing that was happening. Well, I had a specific goal of trying to figure, okay, how can we all work together to get certain people elected? They, it turned into a cathartic experience. And several of the Black women in particular were like, we never talk about these things, things like hair, Mm -hmm. things like men and relationships. So thank you so much for starting it there. Absolutely. And what you're talking about really is just communication. And I think that that's also something within our culture, you know, there. What goes in my house stays in my house. I don't know if you heard it, but I I know I heard it. Family business. And then so it really breeds secrecy 
And it also minimizes conversation. Mm -hmm. And within conversation means that it breeds ignorance because you only have your perspective. And what it sounds like you did, again, applause, applause, applause to you, is to allow for different groups to come together to share their perspective and have aha moments. I had a client, you know, I'm a, I'm a clinician in private practice. I had a client, which I was thrilled. She did. She came into a session, her session, talking of one, I'm thinking we're going to talk about her. And mm-hmm. she asked me, HBCUs teach hate. And I wow. said, excuse me? And she wow. said, yeah, I was told that they, they teach hate and racism. And I said, I am so glad that you felt, number one, safe enough. Yes. Ask me this question. So now we can have the conversation. And two, brave enough to have the conversation. (laughs) So let's have it. (laughs) And we walked away. I mean, we spent her entire session that she paid for (laughs) talking about HBCUs and the purpose and the reason and the need that they were created hundreds of years ago um, and why they still are a purposeful place for our children to grow and be nurtured and loved on and not have to worry about institutional racism and, you know, all of the wonderfulness that goes along with it, which has absolutely nothing to do with hate or racism or any other, you know, ethnic group for that matter. So kudos to you to to get that conversation started. No, in my professional day job, I work with the issue of mental health. And so in that community, I also work with some of the female psychologists. But hearing you talk, it's almost like, <laughs> and you know how they call the Congressional Black Caucus, like the the conscience of the Congress. Like, I really feel like Black female psychologists can do so much in almost setting us straight with a science background with the compassion to address some of these issues, just the way you address that, I think is really powerful. So thank you for that. (laughs) So so you talked, you started to talk about, you know, some of the potential long-term effects when we do neglect mental health, depression, anxiety. Can you talk a little bit more about preventing some of those issues? Absolutely. So let's start with taking the S off of our chest and recognizing that everyone is human and that it is there is no utopia, that not only is it okay to be less than perfect, but guess what? Let me tell you the secret. We're all less than perfect <laughs> and that's okay. <laughs> I think in our community in particular, because we are culturally, we're communal, I think we need to give each other grace. Mm-hmm. And I think that we need to remind one that we need to adjust our expectations of ourselves and of other people. And we need to remind our sisters and brothers when we see them trying to, again, live up to this imaginary bar that it's it's okay. It's okay to stop. Uh, when we were talking earlier, I told you I'm getting over a cold. And I was actually literally in the bed. I, I mean, I went to work yesterday, but I've been in the bed for four days wow. trying to get better because I was sick. Now, let me tell you, I literally cannot remember the last time I allowed myself to lay in the bed. I was probably a child because I know it wasn't college because, you know, you go to class. And so I was probably a child living in my mother's house. 
the last time I allowed myself to drink tea and have soup and oh be in the bedroom for days. Mm-hmm. And really allow myself to get better. And even in doing that, I had in the back of my head a little bit of guilt. Wow. So, but I but I did it because I've got the next three or four weeks are going to be crazy weeks for me. And I said, if I don't kick this now, then I'm really going to be sick. So self-care. So how do we do it? We have to tell ourselves we have to be okay setting boundaries for other people. And we have to set boundaries for ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, so when people talk about self-care, you know, I love going to the spa like anybody else. And that, that definitely holds a place. And there's something to that. But in addition to those kinds of pampering elements, Self-care is also being selfish. Now that word has a bad rap, but let me tell you, being selfish simply means putting self first. That's all it means by definition. And if you don't put yourself first, who in the world is going to put you first? There's nothing wrong with putting yourself first. And so it's being selfish. It's saying no. I mean, like, and no is a full sentence, my friends who are listening no, you don't owe an explanation. If you want to provide one, you know, that's up to you. But no means no. And it's okay to say no. Now, with that in mind, people don't like hearing no. <laughs> so you have to be prepared that somebody might push back. Just because they push back, that doesn't mean that you should uh, get off of no, that you should step aside and say, okay. That doesn't mean that you don't still say no. You're saying no for a variety of reasons. And then the boundaries also, setting boundaries for other people. But it's also setting boundaries for ourselves. And, and the example I gave about myself and being sick is an example of setting boundaries for myself. And those are ways that we can take care of ourselves, which will help in regards to anxiety um, and depression. In addition to you said, how can we minimize having mm-hmm. that? It's self-care and it's also being reflective and allowing yourself to really look at yourself, see what you do well, what your strengths are, and see the areas that are challenged, that you could use some work and allow yourself to really dig deep and do some emotional and wellness and mental health work, which is often reflecting upon decisions that you've made in the past, good and bad, um, environments, you you know, the way you were raised and, and all of these things, i.e. going to therapy and doing the hard work. I love that. And, you know, what I'd like, I'd also like to know from you, you know, I'm involved in a lot of different organizations and a lot of times with, they're mainly Black women. And do you think that is an appropriate environment to try to integrate some of these practices? Or do you think we should probably stick with a professional administering some of these conversations? So I think, I think we all need a therapist. (laughs) I'm going to start there. Everybody needs a safe place to process life. With that in mind, often my clients, because they share such intimate personal information, they often, you know, we have a relationship. And so they often feel like we're friends and think I'm just listening. Well, you know, I'm not. I'm not your your friend and I'm not just listening as a friend would listen. I'm listening through a clinical lens, listening for patterns of uh, decision-making, patterns of behavior, unhealthy processing amongst a variety of other things. And so although we go to the hairdresser and talk to our hairdresser or barber and that's, you know, our 
our unofficial counselor often, or we may talk to our best friend, or even letting our hair down in our organizations or coming together as friends. That's great to get something off your chest, but that's not solving your problem. Mm-hmm. You Going to a professional is really very important. And now when I say that, I do also want to say you have to have a click in order for, I call it the click, in order for it to work. There has to be a connection between the, the clinician and the client in order for the work to be effective. Therapy works, but if you're with somebody that think gets you, that uh, you don't feel safe with, that you're not telling all the truth to and being transparent to, that's not a therapeutic relationship that's going to be effective. And so if you're looking for a therapist, first of all, shop around. I think give it a couple of sessions because the first one, you may be nervous, but give it, you know, if you're three, four sessions in and you don't feel a connection, move on and try somebody else. Now, I hear often that it's hard to find a good therapist, and it is. It is. <laughs> That's why I say continue to look around and shop around. But as you're looking, um, make sure you are checking for credentials. Mm. Is this person degreed and licensed? You want to make sure that you're seeing someone who is licensed and anyone who's licensed, you can look their license up in the state. You can look me up in any state where I practice and it will give you my license number. It will tell you how long I've had that particular license and it will tell you if there's ever been anything uh, negatively reported on me. And this is not just me. This is every licensed clinician across the United States. So make sure your clinician is licensed. And I also say look for experience. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that the person who's been practicing for 20 years is the best fit for you. Mm -hmm. Maybe, but maybe someone who's been in practice for five years, depending on what he or she has been doing, has a greater level of understanding. I am, as you know, I have a PhD. So even though I have the terminal degree, I still take classes from Mm -hmm. time to time because when you've been in the field for a long time, you start to think you know what you're doing, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And then sometimes people take shortcuts. And so for me, taking classes, even though it's probably a class I could teach, takes me back to the basics keeps me grounded, keeps me humble. And so there's a variety of ways uh, a clinician can do that. So you just want to make sure that you're seeing someone who is staying current, but also is still aware of the basic techniques as well. I love that because I just had a conversation with someone yesterday about therapists and they were starting to feel like they weren't the best fit, but because they had been with them for so long and they had developed that relationship, they thought that they should stay, but they weren't sure how to kind of tweak some of the concerns they had. Do you have any tips on kind of having that conversation with your therapist about how you can approach the relationship a little bit differently? Oh, I'm so glad that you brought that up because sometimes a therapist has taken you as far as they can. Mm. If you're feeling like you're not getting what you need out of the relationship, again, it's a relationship. I definitely say have the conversation. And you can say, you know, lately, in the beginning, I really felt like you gave me a lot of homework and now I don't feel like you are. Is there a reason? Or in the beginning, I had a lot of things that I would reflect on. And lately, it just kind of seems like we're chatting. How does that feel to you? Or is there a direction that you're taking me in? 
Or you can just point blank say, I'm not quite getting from our session what I used to get. And I'm not sure if maybe we've gone as far as we can. Mm. Uh, a A good therapist will have the conversation. And it might be, it probably is good for you to shake things up or for you to start seeing somebody else. If your therapist gets offended or defensive, or if you walk away feeling uncomfortable as a result of something that the therapist said, run, run as fast as you can and go find somebody else. Because that tells you right there that the relationship has reached, you know, the end of the road. And I love that that person is present enough to recognize he or she is not getting what they need. I've actually had clients that I've said, okay, well, I, in the last few sessions, it feels like we're kind of spinning our wheels a little bit. Maybe it's time for you to see somebody else. Maybe we've gone as far as we can. Let's have the conversation. And sometimes when you have the conversation, you uncover a roadblock. Mm. And it's not time to move on. Then Mm -hmm. you can address what's happening and you can continue the relationship, but it's okay. And oftentimes people don't want to have to start over. You know, when you go someplace else, now you have to give them all the history Mm -hmm. and, you know, and people don't want to do that. But sometimes it's a really good thing. Start over. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. So, you know, another topic that came up was about ADHD. There was a young woman who um, said that she was diagnosed with ADHD later in life. And she kind of wanted to know, you know, how common this was. And she said she was just kind of operating in her, you know, like we were saying earlier, just the black woman get it done syndrome. And she had just learned to cope with it. Do you have any comments on that? I do. I'm so glad you mentioned that. There seem to be trends in the field of mental health and there's a diagnosis of the moment. And so ADHD is currently one of those diagnoses, almost as if every time you turn around, you're hearing that somebody else has been diagnosed with ADHD. And I'm hearing the term now adult onset ADHD, which I don't even think is a real clinical term to be honest with you. I think it's it's one of those uh, pop culture things. My initial point that I want to make sure that I, I share is the way in which we're living our lives these days absolutely contribute to almost everyone having attention issues. You know, so whatever you want to label it, we're multitasking. We have on an Apple Watch that where we get our messages while we're looking at a computer and reading emails while we have a podcast, haha, on our phone and listening to the podcast, you know. I mean, so we're doing all of these, you know, we're multitasking and some people are quite proud of their ability to multitask. However, we're really not multitasking. What our brain is doing is going in and out of attention and in and out of focus. Mm-hmm. And so it's the watch, the TV, the podcast, the, the computer, the watch, the TV, and it's going in and out, in and out, in and out. And I believe that over time, we're almost rewiring the way in which our brains work and the expectation of our brain and the stimulate and how it's stimulated. And so whether it's a child or it's an adult, but anyone with attention issues, I would encourage you to first simply do one thing at a time. Just stop and do one thing and focus on the one thing and then stop 
and do the second thing. So there's that. The other point that I want to make is that sometimes the ADHD diagnosis is a misdiagnosis. Many other disorders, mood disorders in particular, mask as ADHD sometimes. So some people who are depressed or who have anxiety or who have bipolar disorder, they're sometimes misdiagnosed as having ADHD because really what we're talking about is inability to pay attention and stay focused, at least to the level that you want to. Mm-hmm. And so when somebody is depressed, one of the things happens is you can't focus. Or if you have anxiety, you can't focus. And so I would encourage anybody who has an ADHD diagnosis, who's never had any um, diagnosis, never any problems in school, meaning behavioral problems or teachers having to repeatedly, not from time to time, but repeatedly telling you to, to, to redirect you back to the assignment at hand, I would encourage you to get a second diagnosis and just, just to make sure. Now, with that in mind, I'm not a big fan of labeling. Mm-hmm. I really believe in addressing the symptoms. And so with ADHD, the only reason a person would need an official diagnosis is if they want to be medicated. And mm-hmm. I'd like your audience to know that there are many ways to address ADHD that are non-intrusive, non-medicated techniques. And there are, you know, again, therapists, clinicians, and ADHD specialists out there in the world that can teach techniques that aren't quite as invasive as um, medication. Thank you. Thank you for that. So on a slightly different note, I didn't submit this question, but it's something that I definitely, I'll be vulnerable, that I do struggle with sometimes. Someone asked just simply, how do you create a positive self-image? And for me, I think it's also, first of all, I would love to hear if you have any responses for how to do that with our Black, young Black girls. But then also with us as women, especially when there are so many times and so many ways that your your self-image can be attacked, quote unquote, just through life, just through living, would love to hear from your perspective, how do you foster that in our young ladies and how do you maintain that as a woman? When you say that, what I think about is self-esteem, of course, and self-love mm-hmm. and self-acceptance. Yes. And so we're really beginning with accepting ourselves, flaws and all. And in regards to our girls, it's important that they're surrounded by people who, of course, have their own positive self-image because our children will only hear half of what we say, but they're watching everything that we do. Yes. And so the mom that tells her daughter, oh, you're so beautiful. You're amazing. You're, You're just the perfect person in the world but that turns and looks at herself in the mirror and says, oh my God, I gained 10 pounds. I'm such a big fat pig. I'm Mm -hmm. disgusting. And, you know, talks about negative to herself is sending the wrong message to her daughter. Your daughter isn't really hearing that you think that she's beautiful and walks on water. She's Mm -hmm. hearing how you've torn yourself down because don't forget three weeks ago, you told her, oh, you look just like me. Mm -hmm. The messaging that we give our, our young girls is, is important and they're watching what we do. So role modeling, good behavior is, I mean, good self-image is important. Um, affirmations, I'm a big 
person. I'm a huge believer in journaling because it makes you stop and be reflective. Um, a little tip is pen and paper is different than electronic journal. There's a lot of electronic journals now, and we spend so much time on technology. I want to encourage people to um, journal pen and paper, but either way, you get to stop and be reflective. And in reflecting, you can remind yourself of affirmations. I mean, it's a good thing to every day pick out something positive about yourself, something that you like about yourself, whether you write it in your journal or you look in the mirror and you say, you know, your hair looks really pretty today, or you killed that project at work today or yesterday, or you go girl, you're, you know, you look amazing in that dress, you know, whatever it is, but to feed yourself. Because you said something that's very concerning, which is there are lots of things and people that can negatively impact your self-image. And I'm going to say, only if you allow it. Mm, Don't yes. empower anyone outside of you to impact how you see yourself. And I mean anyone. That's your mother, your spouse, your sibling, your best girlfriend. Now, I will say, you know, I think a good girlfriend will tell you when your slip is hanging. So mm-hmm. if your girlfriend says, Go, go home and put on some spanks. You know, you. I'm not saying don't listen at all. Maybe you stop and look at yourself in the mirror and say, oh, I did. Oh, I should have put spanks on today. Or you say, you know what? No, I like how my lumpy lumps are rolling in this breath right now. Right. <laughs> so I'm not trying to say never accept constructive feedback. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is don't turn over the power of how you feel about yourself to someone else. And so that's one thing. I always, I think having goals and striving for goals, whatever your goals are, academically, professionally, personally, and setting small milestones on the way to the larger goal. As you meet each milestone, each milestone that you meet is going to give yourself a steam a boost. And so this is concerted effort and work. Positive self-image, if you have to work on it, it's okay, let's work on it. And it starts, you know, it starts with you. I love that. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And you were right. This time has passed by (laughs) very quickly. But I do (laughs) have one more question. And when I saw this, it reminded me of a show that I saw. I don't know if you've ever seen that show, Couples Therapy, where it's a psychologist sees all these different couples and it just kind of goes through. I Um, refuse to watch that show. I have not seen it now. (laughs) <laughs> okay, I can imagine why you were really want to watch it. But but it was one episode where there was an African American couple that came in to to speak with the psychologist, and there was concerns on both sides whether race was impacting the way she was able to provide therapy services. And so I just think back to that because they had a, a discussion about it. The psychologist then went and like met with like her mentoring group and there were several African-American psychologists in that group and they talked through like the best way to go about it. And so, you know, this person asked, how can allies and healthcare professionals better support the mental health needs of black women? Do you have any thoughts on that? And particularly because I mean, I'm sure a lot of people will say it's hard to find a black woman psychologist, but do you have any thoughts about how race may be a barrier or how other healthcare professionals can just support the mental health of Black women? 
I do. Thank you for that question. It's so interesting. So I've been in private practice 23 years now, okay. um, although I'm only 32. <laughs> but <laughs> when I started my practice, I didn't have a web presence. Everything was word of mouth. And my practice was predominantly white. Okay. I had very, just a couple, I mean, just very few black people. And then I, every now and then I would have someone of Asian descent and um, Latin descent, but mostly predominantly white. As time passed and I had a web presence and my photo was on my web page, people could see that I was black. And then I, then my practice started shifting, which is really powerful to me because I'm just always beating this drum about, you know, Black people getting therapy. Mm. And so I believe that people want to see someone they think that they can relate to. Mm-hmm. I believe people often feel they can relate to people that look like them and that they believe have had the same type of experience that mm. they have culturally. Not all Black people are the same, as you yes. know. And so to be painted with one broad brush is insulting to, to all of us, mm-hmm. which is why I said you've got to shop around. Even if you want to make sure that you see a Black woman or a Black man, then you might have to shop around. I have two sons, and it was very important to me that their therapist was a Black male. Mm-hmm. Their father died when they were very young, and I wanted them to be able to, again, you talk about positive self-image. I wanted them to be able to see themselves in a positive manner through the eyes of a Black man. I mean, so there are a lot of reasons why people want to see a therapist that's culturally relatable. Now, when I say the word culture, that psychologist that you were talking about, she had an ethical obligation to be culturally competent. Mm-hmm. And if she's not culturally competent, she should have referred these people that came to see her because you just might not be. And that's OK, because, again, not all white people are painted with the same brush. So mm-hmm. Lots of people have di- different backgrounds as well. And uh, cultural competence is a real thing. And so you want to make sure the therapist that you're going to see, irrespective of the color of his or her skin, is culturally competent. And if the couple had any questions, that again, that should be the last time they see that person and they go on and, and see somebody else. And I appreciate that she did at least reach out to some others to get some feedback. But what she should have done was gone to, to take some continuing education courses mm. or a class on cultural competency. Wow. Wow. Excellent. Well, Lisa, I have really, really enjoyed just kind of chatting with you about, you know, such an important issue. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been wonderful. Thank you for having me. And again, thank you for the topic. This has just been um, wonderful. I've enjoyed our time together. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this conversation with Dr. Lisa Lowry Lomas on Black women's mental health. I hope you remember that it's okay to take a break. It's okay to put you first. And it's definitely okay to speak with a therapist. For more information on the Arlington, Virginia chapter, please visit our website at arlingtonlinksinc.org and follow us on social media at Arlington Links.